Good morning. Please turn towards the very end of your Bibles or your Bible apps to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 now. We looked at chapter 1 last week. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to the recording because I was trying to give a really kind of big overview of this strange and uh, somewhat confusing book. Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 1, I'll read through verse 11. This is Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we're sobered to hear these messages addressed to churches far removed from us in time and context. Sobered because we see and hear ourselves in them. Help us to receive your word this morning with humility. And as your word humbles us, Lord, may it also lead us into the joy of knowing your love for us in the Lord Jesus. Help us, we pray in his name. Amen. Quick YouTube search will quickly confirm for you in case you're not sure that there are a lot of opinions in and outside of the church about what churches should be doing. But because the church is Jesus' church, what Jesus thinks about it is vastly more important than what any YouTube influencer with an axe to grind has to think about it. It's even more important than what we have to think about it. Uh, What if Jesus, like we just heard here in Revelation, what if Jesus sent our church a message? Uh, What if he sent us a letter to tell us what he thinks about us? 
And there's a lot of people running around who think, oh, if only God would speak to me. Well, careful what you wish for. You might not like what you hear. Uh, I did not get any letters or emails from Jesus this week about our church. Uh, that inbox is still empty. But we do begin looking at these messages today that he did send straight to seven churches in the first century. Uh, and even though they were not written to us, uh, they are still written for us as the people of God through all ages. Each one of these letters ends with Jesus exhorting the hearers to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. They were not only meant to be passed around to all seven of these churches as a messenger would have taken them on this circuit to each of these cities in Asia Minor. They are also written as scripture for the church down through the millennia. Uh, last week we heard that these seven churches are in first century Asia Minor. That is what we call today the western piece of Turkey. Uh, we're going to see in all of these letters that all seven of these churches are struggling. Uh, though they're all struggling in different ways. It might feel kind of discouraging uh, to dig in to the mail of these other churches and hear about all the problems they're having, uh, to hear about their sin uh, and their suffering. But we need to understand, in case we're tempted to be discouraged by all this, that the entire book of Revelation, with all of its wild imagery and visions, the whole thing is meant to help these churches and churches like those churches. It's meant to help them and us in the midst of their and our struggles. The very things that Jesus is pointing out in these letters and talking about are the very things that the, the entire book of Revelation is trying to help mitigate, trying to help draw them out of, whether we're talking about discouragement over suffering uh, or discouragement over sin or temptations to compromise in various ways with the world. Today we're going to look at the first two churches, one located in a city called Ephesus and another located in a city called Smyrna. Uh, the first one, Ephesus, is certainly not the worst out of the seven churches, but as you heard, it is doing pretty badly. Uh, but the second one, uh, even though it appears to be doing badly from the outside because they're suffering so much, this is one of only two churches out of the seven for whom Jesus has nothing critical to say, uh, for whom he has no word of judgment about what's going to happen if they don't change. Uh, so let's dig into the first one, the message to Ephesus. The main point of their message is to not forget. Don't forget. Uh, you might have caught this, but in all of these messages, Jesus begins by, first of all, identifying himself in terms of some piece of the vision we heard about last week in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus latches on to one element of what John was seeing as he heard Jesus speaking to him. And Jesus uses that to frame everything in this one letter. Here in the letter to Ephesus in chapter 2 verse 1, he introduces himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, if you weren't here last week, this image of the stars in Jesus' hand and him walking among these big lampstands. These are images about Jesus being present among his churches, about Jesus seeking to preserve them and help them and watch over them. In every one of these letters, Jesus says that he knows something about these churches. For the Ephesians, he says, I know your works. Uh, we'll see that for a couple of these churches, that's not a good thing for Jesus to say. 
But at least for the Ephesians, it starts out as something good. Uh, The church is a real mixed bag. Jesus starts off with what's good. He says, I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and that you've not grown weary. And so you see, it's a church that's working really hard. It's a church that's enduring a lot. And in particular, they're really careful in a good way about not allowing false teaching or sin to infect their church. They are intolerant of evil in a way that Christians and churches should be. There's a lot of things that we should not tolerate. They refuse to let the world allure them into compromise and corruption. It's a constant temptation for churches, for Christians, to be shaped into the mold of the world around us. This church is really good about avoiding that. You hear in verse 2 that they are guarding themselves against false apostles, against those who claim to come speaking on Jesus' behalf, but are really speaking against him and speaking against his word. And that might seem weird to us uh, in our world of relativism, our world of you do you, I speak my truth, you speak your truth, everyone just does what works for them as long as we don't hurt each other. It might feel weird to us in that kind of world to hear that in the New Testament, there are constant warnings against false teachers and false apostles. Uh, In Jesus' words, we have to be on guard all the time against those who look like sheep, but are really wolves. They are going to look like sheep. They're going to sound like sheep. They're going to sound really appealing. They're going to sound really nice. They're going to sound very Christian. But Jesus says, watch out, they're wolves. They're going to destroy you. Watch out for what they say and what they do. In Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul uh, was speaking to the elders, the first generation of elders in this very church, this church of Ephesus. Paul planted this church in this huge city in Asia Minor. And in Acts 20, he's about to leave and he's talking to the first elders of that church. And one of his main points is to warn them against false teachers. And he says, some of these false teachers are going to come from inside of your own church. It's going to be some people that you accepted into the church and that everybody loves and, and thinks are great guys. He says, some of them are going to turn out to be evil Wicked wolves who are going to destroy the church. Watch out. And so we can see that a couple decades later, this church is still really good at heeding this warning that the Apostle Paul first gave them back in the day. Their teaching and their doctrine is pure. They're passionate about defending God and his word. And they're so passionate about it that Jesus says, you hate false teaching. You hate the behavior that arises from it. And Jesus says, that's a good thing because I hate it too. Uh, He's talking in specific about this group called the Nicolaitans. We'll hear a little bit more about them next week because they'll pop up in another letter. Uh, But for now, uh, you need to understand that this is a group that apparently went around, like many influencers today, teaching Christians that they could and they should compromise on what Christianity teaches Uh, especially the parts of it that the wider culture finds offensive and difficult to swallow. The Nicolaitans were going around saying, no, 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 you don't have to be offensive. You don't have to bother people around you. The fact that you're offending them shows that you're doing something wrong. You need to to mellow out a little bit. People will like you more. People will come to church more if you're not offensive. But the Ephesian church is spiritually mature enough to understand this for what it is, and they hate it. And you see here that Jesus also hates it. 
Jesus is passionate for good, sound doctrine and teaching. Jesus vehemently hates lies and evil and hypocrisy. And so should we. So it's a good thing that the Ephesian church is so dedicated to it all, that they are guarding themselves so well from the siren song of the world. Even though it's costly and difficult for them to do so. They live in a huge city that was famous in the ancient world for its giant temples and sprawling industries that all revolved around the worship of the pagan gods, especially the the huntress Artemis. But in verse 4, Jesus drops a big truth bomb on them. He says, you're doing some important things really well, but when it comes to the most important things, you are failing badly. Verse 4, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. They've forgotten their first love. Jesus. They're passionate about defending him and his word, but they don't really love him anymore. I imagine that they would have objected quite strongly to hearing Jesus say this about them. They could have easily pointed to all of their zeal for scripture and theology, uh, for everything that it had cost them, everything they're giving up to stay strong for Jesus. They could have easily said to him, but Jesus... Didn't we do all this? Aren't we doing all this because we love you? It's not that different, I think, from a man who's shocked when his wife or his kids tell him that you don't seem like you love us anymore. Because he thinks that all of the paychecks and all of the down payments and all of the college funds that he's been providing for so many years are the same thing as loving them. He says, what do you mean I don't love you anymore? But Jesus says, you've lost your first love to this church. The first and the greatest commandment in the whole Bible is to love God with our whole heart, with everything that we are. And Jesus shockingly teaches that when we love him, we are loving God, that loving him is loving God. Many of us here today, if you're a Christian, many of us can look back to earlier times in our lives when we were a lot more passionate about Jesus and so much more grateful for what he had done for us. When we really knew and felt and expressed our love for him in prayer and in song and in worship. Now, this message to the Ephesians is so haunting because it's so on the nose for so many Christians and churches and pastors. It's so easy to just go through the motions to put on a spiritual performance, to be really busy doing church activities and church programs. So easy to get really deep into the weeds on heavy-duty, high-octane theology, but all the while, with your love for the Lord, growing cold. So it's a sobering warning for us today. Uh, Elders met on Thursday, and we spent some time talking about this. Love for the Lord Jesus must be the most important thing about us and about our church. Even though it's true, we do need to be on guard against false teaching and bad theology. These are not at odds with each other. 
But this love for the Lord is not just something subjective or emotional. This love for the Lord is always expressed in action. Jesus tells the Ephesians, do the works you did at first. Uh, Emotion is an important part of the Christian life, but Jesus doesn't say, go feel some good vibes and groovy feelings again like you did at summer camp back in the day. In In John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples, if you love me, You'll keep my commandments. Uh, Now, loving the Lord has lots of private, personal manifestations. It does often look like and grow through all kinds of personal and family, spiritual disciplines and devotions. Things like worship and prayer. But over and over in the Bible, loving God must look like loving other people. Especially fellow believers in the local church. Speaking to his disciples in John chapter 15, Jesus summarizes all his commandments like this. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Uh, There's a probably apocryphal, maybe not apocryphal story about the apostle John, the guy who wrote that gospel and also wrote the book of Revelation. At the very, very, very end of his life, he lived way longer than any of the other apostles. He was the only one to not be martyred. Uh, He lived into his 90s. There's a story about him in his 90s. who is so old he can't even stand up anymore he can't really hardly do anything in church and so they would bring him in on a chair into the church service to preach his sermon because he couldn't stand up anymore and all he would say is love one another love one another love one another and they'd trot old man John back out on his chair we don't only love other Christians of course but throughout the Bible our love for the world outside of the church is something that flows out of our love for each other within the church. If it's not happening in the church, it's not going to happen anywhere else. And so because of this unbreakable link between loving Jesus and loving other Christians, it's likely that much of the problem here in Ephesus is that they don't love each other anymore. They need to go back to what they did at first. They need to love Jesus by loving each other. And so it's a reminder for us today too. You all, we all are a loving congregation, I think. But we need to listen to this as the reminder it needs to be. We need to be a church marked by works of love for each other. Generosity with your time and your resources and your homes. We need to be a church that's characterized by listening to each other, speaking God's word to each other. A church that bears the burdens of the weak and the struggling among us. And if you want a really, really specific sermon application this morning, I have two of them for you. We need one or two more people to help teach the children's Bible class and one or two more people to help do PowerPoint slides on Sunday mornings. And so if you hear my voice right now, don't assume that somebody else is going to do it. Consider, can I pass a background check and teach children's Bible class? Or can I press the right arrow key a bunch of times on Sunday mornings? It would be a way to love each other. But back to Ephesus. They didn't have PowerPoint. Coming from Jesus, uh, this is not a feel-good pep talk about love. This is not what Jesus is doing. Don't hear it that way. It's deadly serious. Jesus threatens in verse 5 that if they don't change, he's going to come to them in judgment. He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
Jesus says he's going to kill the church. He says that he's going to turn out the lights so that it's going to be no longer witnessing, being present in the wider world like God intends. Jesus has done this to countless churches since. He's doing it to many churches today, many churches in Austin even, even as many of these churches with Jesus having now turned out the lights on them, many of them continue to go through the motions. They have programs and committees and buildings that are just humming along, possibly even growing. But Jesus isn't there. He turned off the lights. He's gone. So we as a church need to remain vigilant, of course, in our defense against false teaching, but especially vigilant in cultivating love for Jesus and for each other. Uh, One of the things we said on Thursday uh, as elders as we were meeting was that we can never just kick back. We can never just assume that this would never happen to our church. It could. And so to whatever extent we're not doing these things, we need to repent. We need to refocus on the love of Jesus for us so that we might learn in new and deeper ways how to love him and each other. Cultivating love for him and others is a battle. Jesus promises this sinful church at the end of verse 7 that to the one who conquers, this is not a cakewalk, love is not easy. To the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The paradise to come beyond death and the new creation, as Jonathan Edwards said, is a world of love. Jesus graciously gives this world to his forgiven and beloved people who already enjoy a foretaste of that world in the way that we love him and love each other now. We already are starting to live in the world of love to come. That's the message to Ephesus. Don't forget. Don't forget your first love. But now we turn to the second message, this time to a city called Smyrna. The main point of this letter is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Uh, This time in verse 8, Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last who died and came back to life. The first and the last is a title that God repeatedly uses in the Old Testament book of Isaiah to assure his beloved and suffering people that he's going to sustain them in and through the Babylonian exile. That 70-year exile away from their home in the land of Babylon was a kind of spiritual and communal death for Israel. But in the second half of the book of Isaiah, God keeps calling himself the first and the last. God promises them there a resurrection. He says, I'm going to bring you home. And so Jesus now is drawing all of that together in himself as he turns to encourage this afflicted, struggling church. Now this is, like I said, one of only two churches out of the seven who receive only encouragement and only commendation from Jesus. He has nothing negative to say about them. To Ephesus he said, I know your works, but here he says, I know your tribulation and particularly their poverty. But Jesus tells them in this parenthetical comment that in reality, you're rich. Uh, Now to understand what's going on here and in the book of Revelation, you need a little history lesson. So pay attention. This will help you uh, for the next couple months as we go through Revelation. Smyrna 
is a city uh, that was, it was the most important city in Asia Minor for what's called the imperial cult. Not cult like we use the word today, like the Branch Davidians, uh, but cult in the sense of worship and temple and ritual and those kinds of things. Smyrna is the most important city in the first century for the imperial cult. This is a system of worship and devotion that surrounded the Roman emperor and his family as the embodiment of the Roman Empire itself. Treating, starting with Julius Caesar and then down through his descendants, treating and honoring the emperors and their families as demigods, kind of somewhere in the middle between God and man, treating them as demigods was a central element of social and political and economic life in the Roman Empire, especially in Asia Minor, where they loved this kind of stuff and they ate it up. The Roman Empire was very happy to tolerate and incorporate the worship of all kinds of gods and in all kinds of ways, no matter how much they all contradicted each other. The Romans were happy to incorporate all that into their life as long as you were willing to be supportive of other people's gods and especially as long as you were willing to participate in the imperial cult as the glue that held the entire society together. The pressure to worship Roman idols will show up even more prominently and clearly in a couple of these other letters. But it seems like these Smyrnan Christians are impoverished because they refuse to participate in the worship of the emperor. And so they've been shut out of their jobs and with their jobs, their income. It was common at this time. It was common for there to be trade guilds that revolved around the imperial cult. You could not work in your field if you would not go along with the clothing and the holidays and the rituals that went along with it. Along with it. And some of these rituals were very minor and very small. Romans were perplexed by the early Christians in the first couple centuries because they would tell them, they'd say, well, you don't even have to believe that the emperor is God. You don't even have to actually care about this stuff. You just have to kind of do it. You just have to burn these little sticks of incense in front of the statue. And we don't even care if you actually believe it. And the Christians would say, no. I can't do that, no matter how small or minor it might seem. And so the Romans just could not believe. They said, you hate our society. You hate our gods. You're against us. You're dangerous. You won't even do these little things that keep us together. We're going to go more into it next week. But it is not all that different than the kinds of pressures that many of you are now facing in your workplaces to support all kinds of behaviors and ideologies that are clearly at odds with biblical Christianity. It is not all that different than many of the pressures that you younger people and you kids are going to face in school or on social media to conform and to go along and to post certain things in your profile pictures to show everybody that you're a part of the system and that you're a good person. So the Christians in Smyrna are facing all kinds of pressure and suffering from the wider Roman society, which could not make any sense of what was wrong with these crazy intolerant bigots called early Christians. But as you can see all over the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, these early Christians are also facing hostility, not just from the Roman society, but also from the Jewish community, uh, from the Jews who lived there in Smyrna. There were Jews all over the ancient Roman world. In the first century, here's part of our history lesson. Let's keep going, tracking with me. In the first century, you heard about this imperial cult stuff and you wondered, what about Jews? They can't do that. You're right. Good job. In the first century, the Jews supported Julius Caesar in the civil wars that were going on to figure out who was going to be in charge. And because they had supported Julius Caesar, 
And they said, hey, look, we have this really ancient religion that says we can't worship more than one God. We have our own God, and there's no way we're going to do this. And so the Romans said, well, okay, we'll give you an exception. You don't have to participate in the imperial cult as long as you are willing to pray for the emperor. And the Jews said, that's great. We're willing to do that. We'll pray for the emperor. We're not going to pray to him. And so the Jews were a very special group in the Roman world. They were the only group that was given this exception to not have to participate in it. Many parts of the New Testament revolve around this huge conflict that starts arising when you get all of these Greek and Roman pagans starting to become Christians. And they start saying, hey, look, I belong to Israel. I worship Israel's Messiah. I'm Jewish too. And while many Jews also began to worship Jesus, most of them didn't. And starting with Jesus himself, opposition from Jewish local leadership pops up all over the New Testament far earlier than opposition from the Romans does. And then as you see in the book of Acts, these Jewish leaders would go to the Roman authorities and they would complain. They'd say, hey, what are these Christians doing? Complaining, or claiming that they can have these special exemptions like us. What are they doing running around insisting that Jesus is king? Uh, you see in the Gospel of John too, but you see it in Acts where they would go and they'd say, hey, these Christians, uh, Mr. Roman authority, you know, they're actually undermining our society because they don't support the emperor. They're not loyal to him like we have been. Uh, when Jesus is being crucified and they're trying to convince Pilate to execute him, uh, the Jewish leadership accuses Pilate. They say, if you don't kill Jesus, you are not a friend to Caesar. And then very shockingly for Jewish people to say, they say, we have no king but Caesar. So the early Christians are facing opposition on one side from the Jewish community and on the other side from the larger Roman society. Uh, the Jewish community would often, we see in the New Testament, the Jewish community would often pressure the Romans to harm the Christians. It's not all that different than the growing dynamic today where various people and groups claiming to represent Jesus call for the state or for the wider society to look sideways or crack down on Bible-believing churches because they're supposed to be dangerous and destructive. And so perhaps shockingly to us today, in verse 9, Jesus says that this Jewish community is in reality a synagogue of Satan. He says that they are not actually Jewish in the deepest sense of the word. Even though, of course, uh, if they would have done one of these DNA tests online, it would have said, yes, you're ethnically Jewish. And of course, they cared very deeply about Israel and uh, its people and its scripture. And I realize this sounds really intense and crazy to hear Jesus calling Jewish people a synagogue of Satan. This is not anti-Semitism. Uh, Christians have, yes, they've done many, many horrible things to Jews over the last 2,000 years. But it's not anti-Semitic. John and Jesus are both Jewish. But as the Messiah of Israel, Jesus clearly teaches that when you reject him, you are turning your back on Israel. You are turning your back on its scriptures and its promises and its patriarchs. Membership in Israel revolves around faith in Jesus as Israel's Messiah. Jesus is very clear about that. And so Jesus says to Smyrna in verse 10, even though the Jewish and Roman leadership are working against you, don't be afraid. But he does not say, don't be afraid because life's about to get a lot easier. He actually says, don't fear, even though your suffering is about to get a lot worse. On top of their poverty, some of them are going to be imprisoned. Jesus says that it's the devil himself who's going to be behind their imprisonment. 
Uh, but it's encouraging, isn't it? The very fact that Jesus predicts that the devil is going to imprison them shows us that Jesus is in charge even of the devil, that he knows what he's up to. He's allowing what he's doing. Jesus says they're going to be tested for 10 days, which is probably not an actual uh, length of a jail sentence, but is an allusion from the book of Daniel that we heard earlier. Three times in that little story, we're told that Daniel and his friends had to be tested for 10 days. Uh, It's a way of telling us that God is going to vindicate his servants after a short time, a time of being pressured to conform and compromise by pagans around you. And Jesus encourages them, be faithful to death. Like many, many Christians around the world today, uh, for whom this letter to the Smyrnans sounds much more real and immediate than it does for us in modern-day America, like many, many Christians around the world, some Christians in Smyrna could very well die because of their faith in Jesus. But even so, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Keep going. Stay strong. It's all going to be worth it. It won't last long. And maybe some of you uh, need to hear that. Uh, None of us, I don't think, are in danger of being killed for following Jesus. But more and more, I think, uh, many of us are going to have to face some hard choices about how much we're willing to suffer for Jesus. How much income, what kinds of jobs, what kinds of friends we're going to have to give up to being faithful to him. And so hear this today as you face opposition and scorn and suffering. Because loving Jesus necessarily means refusing to love the false gods of our wider world. Why? At the end, Jesus promises to give his suffering people the crown of life. You see, as the Messiah of Israel, Jesus, not the Roman emperor, Jesus is the king of the world. And so it's his right to share his crown with his people, no matter how much they suffer for him. Jesus says that those who receive his crown of life cannot possibly be harmed by the second death, which in the book of Revelation is repeatedly a way of describing hell. So you see, the only two choices at the end of the day are death or death. The first kind of death, suffering for Jesus up to and including actual martyrdom, should not make us afraid. Because the second kind of death, eternal separation from God under his judgment, can never ever touch us. Because Jesus is with us and for us as those who trust in him. And so whether you or we are more like Ephesus or Smyrna today, the ultimate point is the same. Jesus will sustain you in the battle. And so he will give you life on the other side of it. If your love for Jesus has grown cold, turn to him as the one who first loved you. If your suffering for him has grown hot, Turn towards him as the one who first suffered for you. To the one who conquers, he gives life. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to be faithful even unto death. All of us one day will be on our deathbeds. Some of us much sooner than we think. All of us will have to face that final last battle. Help us to die in faith. Help us to suffer in faith. Help us to always, every one of our days, be sustained by loving you as our first love. Keep us from the temptation to think that being busy with spiritual religious activities is the same thing as loving you. May everything we do as a church and as Christians be driven by our gratitude for what you've done for us. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen.